greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa, invented by Dr. Malani um, uh, Karanga, as a plant platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. I'd like to take Kwanzaa and turn it into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. Why Kwanzaa is, of course, a legitimate question that I always make a point every week because uh, I want to hit that home. I want to I want to I want to pound that home that home why Kwanzaa is utilized. Kwanzaa is of Africa. It is African, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that's in tune with creation and the in the ebbs and flows of the planet as far as first fruits and harvest. It does not infringe upon religion nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples, I believe, need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around. Uh, this would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, which would lead to continuity, then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate, and of course the results of all these uh, processes together are what is called unity. And unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population for many of its struggles over the decades, over the generations, over the millennial, and has been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversities, its struggles, and its enemies as one force. So I want to take and use my show to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population. And not only does it need a central culture, I want to make a case for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that platform. It's efficient. It's not hard. It's something that's already existed in our community for, gener for, for several decades, basically since the 60s. It's already here. So it's not something we have to come up with uh, and, and invent, and, and, and it's inherently African. So it doesn't take much to kind of innovate it in such a way that we can utilize it on a daily basis. Kwanzaa can be utilized on a daily basis. The Ngoza Sova, which are the several principles of Kwanzaa, I, I read them every day. I ask my son if he, what's today in Kwanzaa. He knows the day. Monday's Umoja, Unity. Tuesday's Kujagagila, uh, Self-Determination. And then if you get the right book, we have great leaders and great uh, black entertainers, athletes, politicians, poets, writers, are great black icons that give you um, phrases and paragraphs for the specific Ngoza Sova Kwanzaa uh, day. So on the Umoja, Ujama, which is uh, Wednesday, would be cooperative work and responsibility. You would hear something from A. Philip Randolph. You would hear something from Booker T. Washington. It's really good at centering you 
in an African-based sphere, sphere of influence and African reality. I, I believe that this would make the black community a stronger, more effective, more efficient entity operating in the United States of America. And I absolutely believe that it would make America stronger because its economic potential uh, would be present and more efficient and relevant uh, based on having a strong unity, which a centralized culture could give. So Kwanzaa could do that. Uh, so it's, it's a very efficient, practical platform. And I'm going to cite history, my personal life, as a pro athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations for that need of Kwanzaa and how it can be that center point uh, for black unity. Now, since I'm talking about how important culture is, and, you know, before I get into what culture is, and I think that's a legitimate question, this week uh, I want to get into a new book. Uh, we were talking about Manning Marable, How Capitalism underde Underdeveloped Black America. This week I'm getting into a nice book that I read in the 90s uh, called Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, the African-American Family in Transition by Haki R. Madhu, uh, Madhubuti, <laughs> Africanized name, nice name by the brother. I read this book. It really opened my eyes uh, decades ago. And the thing I, I'm pretty sure I, I read in this book was that when we, we talk about the black community and African-American community in the United States, the group of people that are led by professional athletes entertainers and priests and, and, and clergy and religious leaders when other races and ethnic groups are led by uh, military leaders, politicians, and businessmen, that group, that first group is always going to be in the rear. They're always going to be left behind because those professional athletes, um, uh, entertainers, and even clergy, however well-intentioned they are, and I believe they are, are not astute to power creation and development as the lawyers, as the politicians, as the businessmen, as the generals are for the other groups. And so we're always left behind. And I believe um, Haki or Mahubuti, Haki, I'm just going to call him Haki. I believe Haki read, wrote this in his book. I haven't read it again. I'm going to. Uh, I've been looking through it and thumbing through it, really enjoyed um, what it's bringing to the table today compared to what it brought to the table, you know, in the 90s, it's actually more relevant today than back then. I was a young person just looking for something interesting to read and something historic, but uh, now, you know, the stuff that he talked about is absolutely uh, spot on. And so we're going to get into his book this week, and I'm excited about it, uh, as excited as talking about Manning Marable's book before. This is a new one that's extremely informative. So, again, I'm saying there's a need for a central culture in the black community. That's lacking. That's one of the major impediments to its existence and its survival and its prosperity. Um, so... I'm obviously putting a lot of value and importance on culture. And so the question that we have to now get into, why is it important and what is culture? And so culture 
and we'll then get into uh, black men obsolete once we're done. Um, culture is a playbook for a race, an ethnic group, a nation, a company, a sports team. It puts everyone on the same page. Culture is coming together, a coming together of shared values and beliefs, uh, customs and education, entrepreneurship. Culture must be learned. It, you're not born with a culture. Just because you're Asian and you're Chinese doesn't mean you're ingratiated to Asian Chinese culture until unless someone teaches it to you. It's going to be your mother, your father. And the cool thing and the interesting thing about culture, it's your mother, your father, but your siblings teach you your culture. Your friends teach you your culture. Your schoolmates teach you your culture. Your teacher teaches your culture. As well as educating you on your books, they're teaching you the culture uh, of, your, of your ethnic group. You know, if you come from a culture where, where education is strong, your network, your diaspora, your network of people around you are going to reinforce that. That means your friends are going to be laughing at you when you get F's. Uh, your, your friends are going to, whereas in the black community, your friends laugh at you when you read a book. Act like you're acting right. You're acting white. Uh, when... When you're a, a, a good kid who's smart, your adults are very positive around you. He's going places. He's doing good things. And, of course, mom and dad, you know, putting it to you when you're not getting your schoolwork. That's a culture that does that, that reinforces that. That's why you have certain ethnic groups in impoverished areas that literally produce different types of people from the same impoverished area. And so when we talk about the turn of the century, if this is, uh, if this is 1921 instead of 2021, and we're in New York, we got a community with basically a lot of Germans, uh, a lot of Irish, a lot of Italian, and a lot of Jews. Well, the Irish are going to produce a lot of firemen and policemen, fighters, boxers, entertainers, actually. Uh, the Italians going to produce a lot of tradesmen. Same community. The Jewish community are going to produce a disproportionate number of doctors, entertainers, lawyers, dentists, writers. Uh, all of those things, of course, are higher income earning people. Now, I just said same community and same economic outlook, all really working class poor people, but because of the cultural differences, they consistently produce different types of people. So culture does that. Um, culture, like I said, must be learned. Uh, culture is an economic strategic planning of a race. So if you're a race of people that you want to take over a place or you want to establish yourself economically, it is culture that helps you do that. Yeah, realize if I'm, a, if, if I'm an ethnic group and I just moved to America and we want to get this place for us, we want to live in this place, okay, you have workers. You're working hard. Everyone's got a job. But to do that, you need brokers. You need lawyers. You need real estate developers. You need realtors. You need um, engineers. You need salespeople. You need people who can give you strategies on how to attain that property or that area. You need people that give you information about who's in power and what their aspirations for that specific area you want are. 
The only thing that can keep all those different types of people together and make them one cohesive unit that goes out and obtains power and position is culture. So with the Indian people that you see, I see a lot of Indian people, uh, they have their language, the commonality of language, commonality of ethnicity, and what we've seen in past uh, writings from Dr. Thomas Sewell and his books that actually immigrants that come to this country tend to come from either specific areas of their home country or specific segments of their home country, which means that they come together more unified than the people around them, even though they're new, even though they are immigrants, they have a stronger playbook. They know each other. They, they communicate their, their power density, their connectivity is dense. Their density level is just more, they have more density than the other people that are tend to be fragmented, dispersed, uh, which allows them more efficient mobility because they are, their ability to work with each other is stronger. Their ability to communicate with each other is stronger. Uh, they, again, they're familiar with each other. They tend to come from the same similar areas. So that's an advantage. It actually ends up being an extreme advantage for those new groups. Culture is the glue. It is the thing that, you know, it is the thing that makes it, a whole lot of people work as one. Culture does that. Uh, culture, and it helps with acquisition, uh, educating to attain high-paying jobs. That's culture that gives you that value. Culture is the transporting of history and the identity of a people. We are the chosen people. That's, that's some people say that about themselves. There are other people that are, are, are said to be called the untouchable. That's in India. Uh, you're, obviously, that's not a good thing to be called uh, as far as culture. So um, culture can be a very, uh, a very important ingredient in defining who you see yourself as. And who you see yourself as then becomes what other people see you as. And so that's where culture becomes important. Uh, culture is an economic, political, uh, physiological, spiritual, geographical rallying point for ethnic groups um, that um, you disconnect. If you disconnect an ethnic group from culture, from all these processes, it makes them virtually defenseless. So uh, culture is a template for a race that without it, it cannot exist. It literally can't exist as an operating unit. So that's why culture is, is so prevalent. Uh, culture, what can culture do? There's, there are certain things that only culture can do. Only culture can, can love a specific people. Um, governments it can't do that. Governments are, are, are to protect all of its people, theoretically. <laughs> only a culture can do that for a group. Um, only a culture can teach how to love each other. Only culture can teach why education is important to you. Only culture will help you teach how to honor old people. Uh, culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Culture can, proper, it can properly distribute life savings and societal developing knowledge. So 
when you go, when you talk about going to Africa, there's a way to cook chicken, you know, for a hundred years. There's a way to, you know, make bread that goes back generations. There's a way to rear children. Um, if you go to any ethnic group, any country in this country, those customs are passed down from generations. Now, you're not going to pass down unsuccessful rituals and customs. You're going to pass down the most efficient ones. So when you talk about having a centralized culture and what they can give to you, it can give you winning, winning strategies for just about everything. Child rearing, building homes, building structures. Uh, there are these huts that are built, and they're not even called huts, but they're built in Alaska that you can tell they've been building these things for generations. Uh, they're made out of wood, and they're incredibly resilient and strong. Well, that's over generations of learning how to build these structures. So that can be given to you by a culture. Culture is a critical point as far as making an ethnic group uh, efficient and and giving it the ability to survive and prosper. Now, the negative, of course, the drawback, if your culture becomes isolated, too isolated, which has happened, and you get passed by by other cultures that develop their culture, develop their technologies, develop their, their systems, they, now your culture is detrimental to you because now you've been passed by. So now those stronger societies, more efficient societies, can come into your area and take your, your stuff. So culture is a good starting point. It's a good rallying point. But at the end of the day, all groups, all ethnic groups are accountable to the ecosystem and the reality in which they reside. So bows and arrows were probably the high technology 500 years ago. You know, knives and swords, high technology you know, 300, 500 years ago. Eventually the gun was developed. You know, those that didn't move past that became vulnerable to those ones that did develop rifles and, and, and flint locks and cannons and, and their technology kept going. And so culture, you are, culture is a good rallying point, but you are still accountable to your present reality. But culture is something that can help in that process. And so these are the things that culture can do and why it's so important historically um, and presently. And the lack of a centralized culture, I see evidence in the black community and a major problem uh, for that. So a good question now, um, what is it about culture that, you know, how has culture hurt the black community? Obviously it's unity, uh, obviously making it very vulnerable to incursions by other people, getting blacks to fight other blacks, and on top of that, our ability to be proactive to create power bases has been limited uh, and, and marginalized by a lack of a centralized culture. So let's look at the history of, of black civilization. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population who occupied that area were, in fact, refugees of East Africa, where they built their own singular societies and civilizations and had an unknown language, a central language that uh, people haven't found out to this day, 
but clearly there was one singular language over there. So when we talk about East Africa, we're talking about Egypt, but what people don't realize, you're really talking about Ethiopia. Uh, apparently Egypt, according to Chancellor Williams, was really a colony of Ethiopia. So the first, the first empire over there uh, was the Ethiopian empire, then Egypt. And so people get into who were the first Greeks. First of all, the oldest, uh, the oldest pyramid in Africa is not in Egypt. It is actually in Ethiopia. And so getting into who were, the, were, were Egyptians, black or not, uh, you know, our, our leaders don't have a problem with that. We are the first Egyptians. Uh, so, but uh, an unknown language, because of the natural disaster and the immigration of the Arab populations from Asia Minor, the Africans of East Africa began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa and forming their own tribes uh, of, of tribal, forming their own, creating their own tribal languages and cultures. Uh, so now the consequences of this, and there were consequences, with one African country having up to 100 tribes, that's essentially 100 different countries and 100 different ethnic groups. Since every tribe has its own language and literally religion, it is not only is it a state in and of itself, they consider themselves different ethnic groups. And so I literally asked a man, asked a man in a class I had from Liberia, how did you see other tribes that lived five miles from you? Did you see them as another race? He said, absolutely. They spoke another language. They had literally had their own culture. They had their own religion. They were another race. There are a hundred of them in one country. So therefore, it doesn't take much for anyone to come in and take resources out of the country. And literally what ended up happening, the Africans helped the, the, the uh, Europeans do this. And so um, having no central state, the European incursion was unchecked. And instead of unifying to deal with the common threat posed to the region, on the contrary, the slave trade caused infraccidal wars to ensue. So again, the fragmentation of the black race has created a factional reality by which the black man has not manifested, uh, has uh, not needed to build a civilization uh, in or, or his own societies in about 5,000 years. And so these, there's a consequence of this. All right, so... And, 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 and I don't want to forget about the, the disunity and the fragmentation and how that aided the invaders. Literally, I just found out that uh, the Europeans could only go a couple of miles within the continent of Africa, just like uh, white diseases killed the Indians when the white man came to South America. Malaria, and there was malaria and another disease, that made uh, white men going deep into Africa a, a, a kiss of death. Like, they literally could not do it. And so that, that really puts an a, a, a exclamation on the point that they could not have done what they did as far as abducting millions of Africans without the collaborations 
of the existing African populations and, and tribal chieftains and leaders. They gave them trinkets, and there's a book about it, about uh, uh, black, uh, hopefully I'll find it, about black labor and uh, white wealth. And so they would trade slaves for, like, liquor and trinkets to the, to the black chiefs, African chiefs. This actually caused them to, again, this incited them to, to start wars with people they really were not at war with just to get slaves to give to the Europeans. For It's not like they were exchanging them for, for metal, gold, or diamonds, something that had value. They really were exchanging the, slave, the, the labor force that helped the Europeans for things that had very little value. Now, they lived in a world that was very nature-oriented, and so there was no need for that. But the reality is simple. They helped to empower other people by helping to enslave other Africans. Those same Europeans became great imperial powers, and then came back and took over all of Africa by the end of the 1800s. And so this is where the lack of a central culture has a distinct consequence. And so the black man has not had to develop, maintain his own civilization for thousands of years, and there's been consequences of that. Uh, He does not value knowledge. Read books around a lot of white black men, you're acting white. He does not value information. He does not read. Doesn't get into his own history, much less trying to understand all history. He pursues mating rights instead of attempting to dominate the ecosystem he resides in. So you have large numbers of males wanting to get with women and, and, and really being proud. I, I, you have, you'll have brothers proud of having multiple kids, but you... Uh, painter, you you have a you barely have a job. Who's taking care of all these kids? He sees himself as girl and manly, literally by making a whole bunch of kids like this. So uh, he bow, he values physical prowess instead of societal dominance and properties. So instead of uh, instead of personal growth and development and, and starting businesses and owning properties and and gaining in his power and putting that together, he values physical prowess. You know, beating somebody up and being strong and what have you. Uh, so his value system is not geared towards civilization development and nation-state building. Uh, he questions all black authority and naturally subservient to regular authority. So these are the consequences. This is black civilization, the, 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 the reality of black civilization or the lack of black civilization and their consequences to that. Uh, him not having to create and build his own civilization. Uh, there are consequences, again, that I'd like to get into right now. Uh, these consequences are the black man has not needed to maintain, as I said before, uh, his civilizations. This has made the black man remedial in military science, power creation, and acquisition, uh, not even trying to understanding how all those things work together. Uh, making him vulnerable to other predatory ethnic groups. We talked about uh, the Europeans' incursion into Africa. Almost impossible if it wasn't for <laughs> I never knew this. It literally was just about impossible if it were not for black collaboration in the slave trade. Uh, so he, he, he's vulnerable to other ethnic predatory groups. 
and a marginal ally best. He doesn't understand the big picture. Uh, well, the so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. So we have a lot of black people that really don't want to value you, really don't want to get you too much respect, but, man, you better not disrespect them. And so this is, if you are in the day-to-day operations of creating your own and, and, and maintaining and developing and operating your own civilization and society, you just would not have time for petty things like this. And so the lack of a black civilization, this is clearly a consequence of it. And so this, e- this ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself uh, in what I call black zombie nation. And so black zombie nation is what it sounds like. You know, people that are uh, up and walking around, but not necessarily, not necessarily conscious of what's important, not necessarily conscious of what's important for their own survival, not necessarily conscious of what's important for their prosperity, not, not necessarily conscious of what's important to their development and no connection to the ancestry, what we did in the past to be strong, which would give us a direct lineage to what we need to do in the future to make us strong. So by not having that, we are basically walking zombies, not conscious of what we, who we need to be and where we need to go for our own survival. And so when we're talking about Black Zombie Nation, it is things that I've noticed and so that, that I've noticed over the years that are very interesting and definitely examples of that natural antagonism that exists in that black zombie nation. Uh, there's, there were always little beefs between blacks from the North and South as I was a kid. Uh, you know, if you were a Northerner, you know, they, they looked at the Southerners in a different way. Uh, Southerners looked at the Northerners. A different way. Where, now, it's funny, all those northerners, northern blacks came from where? They came from the, the south unless they came from the Caribbean or they were native Africans. So all those blacks from Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., in the summer they would go down south. And, of course, the south, the southern kids would always want to fight them. You know, you think you better than I am because you're from New York, and they would say all kind of stuff like that. And so there was a little, you know, a little discontinuity with the North and South. Uh, of course, the educated blacks, uneducated blacks, that was real big. Uh, I, I know a man that uh, talked, my parents moved from their house and um, it looked like they were kind of forced to move. I guess my father, their, their economics picture wasn't uh, as good as they wanted to. They were retired, so um, something happened, so they moved. But they sold their house. They didn't lose their house. I guess he, the dude must have thought my parents lost their house. But they didn't. They sold the house. And, of course, in Long Island, where they live, the house that you bought in, in 1975, is, you selling it in 2000 worth a whole, lot of, a whole heck of a lot of money. So it was definitely a housing, housing shortage. So people were really, you know, coming away with hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, just selling their homes. And so they were not economical 
they were not in economic distress as I became. And I just remembered uh, some so-called family acquaintance um, mentioning that in, in, a, in a way that was like happy that that happened today. You know, like I'm, I've done better than these so-called uh, educated. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I know educated blacks with two degrees that live in apartments, talking about my, my parents. And so, but uh, they lived in an apartment because they wanted to and they didn't want to get a house. My, my, my mother lives in a house right now. <laughs> so, but that's the mentality uh, of the uneducated to the educated. They're not proud of the black doctor, the black lawyer. He's just another nigga that thinks he's better than we are in the minds of many uneducated blacks. You have Native Africans um, versus African Americans. I had one, one uh, African-American, African, he was working in a store. Now, it's a very, it's a highly black ghettoized area where, you know, in those areas of black, everyone's kind of antagonistic and hostile to each other. But the Native Africans, a lot of these places are run by Native Africans. And so the white people in front of him, he was, he was uh, real friendly. And they had a daughter, you know, like, most adults, they're real talking to the kids and how are you doing today? Are you having a good day? All of this, real nice. And, and then when the white people left, I stepped up and he made this immediate scowl on his face, almost like I stole his wallet or something. It was crazy. Uh, and it was, it was actually funny because it made no sense. What he did was literally insanity. You know, just that I was a black man and, um, if you just skinning and grinning with the white folks, <laughs> you you look like I stole you. Like I'm the dude that stole your wallet, but the pol- I have your wallet. The police couldn't find it, but you and I know I stole your wallet. He looked at me like that, like a complete scowl and disdain uh, for an African American. And so that's a natural antagonism with the uh, Native Africans and African Americans. And of course, you have the same dynamic with Caribbeans and African Americans. And I'm told that Native Africans and Caribbeans are like this. So, and of course, we have the historic light-skinned, dark-skinned uh, people in New Orleans at the turn of the century. You had the brown paper bag, uh, and all their societies, their upper-end societies. If you were darker than a brown paper bag, you could not get into them. So most of the upper-crust societal societies were full of light-skinned people, uh, with the assumption. Now, the, the game plan was these lighter-skinned blacks would be a better intermediary between white people and the rest of the black population. So I think that's kind of what was meant by the talented tenth with W.E.B. Du Bois. Another thing you'll, you'll notice, I noticed, turn of the century, uh, your Howards, your, your, your big black institutions, churches, were all populated by and run uh, by light-skinned black people. And so with Marcus Garvey, the great uh, Jamaican leader who uh, was calling for black unity, I think he attempted to go. I think there was like this, this um, thing where all the light-skinned people sat up front and they didn't, all the important places in the church uh, were populated by white people, by light-skinned people, excuse me. And, Marcus Garvey attempted to sit up there and he, you know, he, he almost got his ass whooped and he was physically removed. He was not allowed 
to sit there because he, of course, was a dark-skinned African-American. So this type of stuff has gone on for a long time. So black, black Hispanics, Greeks, non-Greeks, that was the movie um, School Days is all about. Um, uh, you know, oh, hood, uh, hood people versus corny people. So now in a black community, if your mom and dad went to school, got a good job, and, and gave you a middle-class lifestyle, you're corny. You're a nerdy guy, and you're actually looked down upon by urban hood people. So there's so many ways for black zombies. That's all an, an example of black zombie nation and how the natural fragmentation was in the black race in the so-called black community. Um, see, I, I say so-called black community. To be a community, you cannot be reactive. Communities don't react. They build. They're proactive. You cannot, be, you cannot build and be proactive without a rallying point, a unifying rallying point. You can't, you can't organize that way. You can't execute. You can't communicate uh, without it. So, you know, the, I use that, that term community, so-called community, to say that, okay, don't just use that word if you're not doing those things. You know, don't use that word if you're not doing community-based things. You're reactionary instead of proactive. That's not what ethnic groups do. So we got to get into that. But anyway, we're at the book, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, The African-American Family in Transition, Heikai, Haki, or Madhubuti. Hubute. This is a book about black men. Uh, this is a book about solutions for black men. And so... This is a, a good book. We're first going to, I think we're gonna, I'm going to stay in this book for a while. So I'm excited about it. We're going to move forward in what the author has to say, Haki has to say. Um, he, first of all, he dedicates the book to Malcolm X, uh, dedicates the book to black women. So let you know he's, he's this dude's serious. Uh, in memory of James Baldwin, Bob Marley, Harold Washington, former mayor of, of Chicago, um, examples of, of brothers of the National Black Holistic Retreat Society. He has Nelson Mandela. Uh, these other people I don't even know. So I probably should know them. I'm impressed. Here's an interesting thing he, he gets in. I'm, get, I'm getting to the, the preface right now. Um, we're gonna, I'm just going to read what he said, what he's written, and comment on them. And I think, you know, a lot of things, the nuggets in these books are incredible. They should be read and then discussed. Okay. He's uh, quoting people, and he's quoted Donald Trump. Now, this book is from the 90s, and I remember this. Um, a well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. And I think sometimes a black, uh, a black may, may think that they don't really have the advantage. But I've said it on occasions, even about myself, if I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. That's an interesting. That was said by Donald Trump on race on an NBC special. So that had to be in the 80s. Um, uh, in, in hockey, the author says this is a very dangerous statement, especially since it wasn't challenged 
by anyone. So, and I remember back then being around my uh, teammates and people I worked with, uh, they really believed uh, at this point that, at, you know, being black was now an advantage because uh, people were looking for black men, which actually is a fact. I, I remember being recruited by the University of North Carolina in 1986, and uh, the recruiter said, yes, um, a degree in business administration from the University, uh, University of Chapel Hill would be very good for you, a, a great advantage. They're looking for black males to work on Wall Street, and you can make $80,000, and, you know, that's a good thing. And what people were not realizing that we had affirmative action, basically everyone was basically flailing against affirmative action. And so what they failed to acknowledge was affirmative action existed because it was a known fact that blacks would simply not be given fair opportunities for work, even if they graduated from college, even if they had great GPAs, even if they had um, the right credentials behind their name, the fact that they were black uh, would people would be jumping other lesser qualified whites in front of them. And so the best answer for that was, okay, well, you're going to have to have a quota. You're going to have to hire this many blacks. And it's interesting. I'm pretty sure that affirmative action was, was brought forth by the Nixon administration. So this is something that um, it sets the tone for the perception, even back then, for any advancement for blacks not necessarily being a good thing and people having a little bit of resentment in it. And now my point is where was the black economic system? Where was the, the black corporate structure for these blacks to matriculate in? See, they had to matriculate into the, the dominant white structure that I guess didn't really want them. Um, but, you know, where was the, where was the black corporate structure? Where was the connection, uh, connecting point between these educated black men and the black power structure? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is these educated black men should have been able to go into black businesses in black communities, empowering those communities, um, creating more jobs for blacks that didn't have degrees. That's essentially how ethnic groups work. But I don't see that and didn't see that. And we talked about that in Manning Marable's book, that little disconnect. And so uh, we're going to look at some of the things he said and comment on them. So he talks on page one, the first thing is introduction, about a lack of consciousness. Well, I'll, I'll start this. This first thing he says, I consider myself primarily a poet. I am a poet in African-American griot tradition, a keeper of cultural secrets, history, short and tall tales, a rememberer. As a black poet, I have a certain sense for language, both its beneficial and destructive powers. So he's acknowledging this book is about what things are in existence that hurt black uh, people, particularly black males. And so when he's saying language and words uh, that are beneficial and destructive, just like uh, what we talked about before, 
a culture can empower you or it can take power from you. You know, the untouchables in India. There are people who are tip, tip, tend to be darker, uh, definitely poor, and they're considered untouchable. You don't want to marry one like that. So that's a language that um, the author is making reference to. Therefore, as a writer who is well aware of his own cultural heritage, I am extremely affected by anything that alters that heritage. So he's aware of his greatness. So things that want to deny that, he's, he's conscious of. In America, not only has my African heritage been altered, a polite description, but also African-American people have been mentally and in many cases physically disfigured. We are not who we used to be. I am keenly aware that all people change. However, we have been transfixed, made motionless by others, transformed into people who are often unrecognizable from our original African selves. We are people who, are by, by and large, have been taught to deny reality as we hurried, hurriedly tried to fit into somebody else's worldview. Um, he's really going right at it. <laughs> and I really appreciate where he's coming from. So that, there's a lot of directions you can go with that. You can go with the fact that um, you have black people that I don't consider sell, selling out, but like everyone else, have have bought into the American dream, which is making a lot of money, getting you a, high, a, a large piece of property, getting you nice vehicles, and getting you a lot of things. He's making reference to those blacks that have been able to do that but have not uh, been able to do it in a way that benefits other people, and, uh, and particularly their people. And as with the whites and everyone else, that way has alienated them from themselves. They are not white, and there are times where they find out in a harsh way that they are not white, but they're operating within the white ecosystem of corporate America. They're, they're speaking the right way, they're dressing the right, right way, and uh, that is what he's referring to. Uh, I read a book called The Rage of the Black Middle Class uh, in the 90s. And in this book, it talked about those people, who I think he's referring to, as the most frustrated people in uh, the black community. Because these are the people who educated themselves. These are the people who, um, as he's referring to, they say the right things. They do the right things. They operate themselves um, they conduct themselves in a very professional corporate way. Um, I remember my father saying, you actually should do well in America because you actually smile a lot. Didn't mean much to me. I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I smile easily and I don't mind smiling a lot. He's saying that in the white world, that's something that will bode well for you as a black male. What he's saying is that the black male people who don't smile or that is a turnoff to white people. And so this is what he's referring to, to that corporate game of white America that the middle-class blacks have been forced to play. And I wouldn't call it skinning and grinning because I'm not a skinning and grinning guy. He's saying you smile on your own. It's not 
something that is forced, um, and that is something that reflects positively on white people. Um, interesting, but it, this book about the rage of the middle-class blacks is that they've done all those things, they've dressed the right way, they've spoken in the right way, but they've also ran into a glass ceiling that they really have not gotten to the late, the heights that they expected, that there's like, they they go to places where there's a a spot for the black guy, where you don't have any real power and authority, uh, where, okay, and and then what ends up happening, and so I know it happens in football, in sports, once you are that person, that token person, everyone kind of reacts to you in that way. So it now becomes a place for you to be disrespected. Uh, and so this book uh, talked about that. And so uh, uh, Hakeem, going into blacks not knowing themselves is absolutely spot on. I also realized on the lower level as far as being ghetto, uh, I don't know if he's referring to that, but I see that on the lower levels in the, in the, in the working class, the uneducated with the ghetto mentality where we are, we are the disrespectful people that don't, 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 you know, don't mind running our mouths. And I, I remember being around some, uh, we had some friends that we went out for pizza with when my kids were young. And uh, it was a white couple with their son and a black couple with their daughters. And they had a young, cute little girl who actually reminded me of my daughter. Now, he's from Philly. They were from Philly, and I don't know why he said this about this. She was little. She was like two or three, and she, he said he referred to her as, oh, he didn't call her a picking or anything like that. He didn't say anything ethnic, but he said that, you know, basically saying she's going to be a little bossy little girl, um, um, you know, when she goes up and she's starting young type of thing. I don't know what. I don't know the, his exact words. I do not remember, but it was – her parents didn't hear him, thank God, and I really don't think he meant it as an insult. But this is what Haki is saying when he talks about us being someone else's people, us being in someone else's reality, the reality that we brought up from slavery, which is domineering black women, uh, who was taught that from the plantation – and also the stereotype that all black women are this way, which, of course, not all black women are this way. And, this, and first of all, this hasn't worked for us anyway. So it's not something that we would need to be promoting and encouraging. And it's interesting that a white man would, would have that view. So that's what Haki is saying. We've got to get out of other people's worldview. We're not the untouchables. And so the thing that can do that the thing that can help you is centralized culture, is teaching you to love yourself, teaching you to respect yourself. Utilize that strong, that strength in your, in your females, which we have in many cases. And so that's not something that someone else gets to comment on and make a decision on. That's something we need to be addressing and embracing. And so that's, now, that's part of Kujagagila, self-determination, thinking for yourself, loving yourself and moving on. And so this is, I think this is what he's referring to. Um, 
the ignorance about the state of black people in America is appalling. However, what is even more appalling is that few black people in the dominant culture even give a damn. And too many African-American leaders have no idea how to improve the lives of their people. This book is the result of certain amount of frustration, which I feel, <laughs> not just you, Haki, I had grown tired of reading sociological and political reports alleging uh, to address the black condition. Most of these books, which are published by and large, by large trade or university presses, and written by white or Negroes, contain only an analysis without offering workable solutions for improving the status of black people. Uh, if, an, uh, if explanation or examination was enough, after the tens of thousands of pages published over the last 30 years on the problems of black people, the black family, black women, black men, we should be free. <laughs> I like that. Conscious and developing people, this is not the case. It's like saying that the air is clean and the water is drinkable in Los Angeles. <laughs> the great point uh, the author makes, he's saying there's too, too much talking and writing. Everybody's got an idea, but no one's come up with a conscious solution that addresses the, is, these issues and move us forward. And so uh, um, it's, this book I read when I played, so it's in the 90s, and I think this book always sat with me and, you know, has brought me to where I am with the need of a centralized culture and how Kwanzaa can be that platform. See, what he's referring to is the inability to be proactive. That's what the author is referring to. And I think Kwanzaa gives you that platform. So let's get into, he talks about the lack of consciousness. One of the tragedies of black life in America is that too many black people never acquire insights into their own existence. They just do not know who they are. And this confusion about identity and source is at the core of our ignorance. The Africans have a saying, if you don't know who you are, any history will do. Welcome to America. This is the land where genocide was committed against nations of indigenous people, where New York was purchased with beads, where the ab ab abnormal, def um, abnormal defined normality and where young people live and breathe on the words of burnt-out rock stars with their noses cut off. <laughs> I think he's talking about Michael Jackson. African people uh, have little knowledge of themselves. We are products of, of a slave history, a Eurocentric worldview that by definition cannot be developmental or inspirational. This history, for the most part, uh, has been written, disseminated, and taught by the sons and daughters of the people who raped Africa of its people and wealth, and literally sprinkled Africans around the world. They, uh, they, while doing this, developed, created, in their politics, science, and economics, education, and religion, a rationale for black destruction. This Eurocentric rationale provided the intellectual and moral basis for their taking of the world. Therefore, the world was divided into colors, black, white, and others. Wow. <laughs> Wow, uh, great point by the author. I think this gets in. We'll have to get into this at a later date. Um, it just talks about that is all about Kujagagila, self-determination, not allowing people to think for you, and the consequences of allowing people to think for you. Obviously, when people think for you, they're going to think for you in a way that benefits them. And so my, my belief is that Kwanzaa and a centralized culture 
can be a, a, a unifying platform for the population in America, and there are distinct economic and political advantages, obviously for the black community, but also for the rest of the country because of that. So um, these are the things that I wanted to talk about today. I've enjoyed my time with you guys. Uh, man, this is the first, like, we haven't even gotten into the book yet. So this guy is pretty serious. He talks about some things that were written 20, 30 years ago that are re relevant and pertinent today. We're going to get into them. Uh, it talks about the dislocation and disconnection of, black, of the black males and black population. And my whole point is Kwanzaa is the thing that can help that. So thank you for your time this week. I enjoyed this show, and I'm looking forward to getting, to, getting into this book further down the road. You guys have a blessed one. Take care. Thanks again.